This Broadway Bullet unedited interview is brought to you by the School of Theater and Performing Arts at the University of Providence, uprovidence.edu, and the Dramatist Guild Fund at dgfund.org. Ellis is a three-time Tony nominee, batting three for three, I believe. With, <laughs> yes, uh, losing, <laughs> losing three times. Thank you. Thank you for rubbing salt on that wound. Hey, I would love, <laughs> I would love to have lost the Tony three times. <laughs> three, three times Stick a bat. Stick around. Any, listen, you know, anything <laughs> could happen to me, it could happen to you. And, and, and such, a, such a great body of work already with uh, Jersey Boys, with... Peter and the Star Catcher, and with Adam's family. And uh, we're here to talk about a few things, and namely the first kind of thing at hand is that Jersey Boys is returning off-Broadway to yes. New York City. It's coming back to New York from, <laughs> from across the river uh, to the uh, New World stages on 50th Street, and, and uh, we, we, uh, we open on November 22nd, just minutes before Thanksgiving. You're not a stranger to a Broadway transfer to the New World stage's home either, are you? Uh, you make it sound so you make it you make it sound so old hat, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> well, not uh, that many Broadway, there not many shows have tried this model yet to begin, and you've got two of them now. Well, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, Avenue Q um, sort of pioneered yeah. this, uh, and it uh, it opened on Broadway in uh, 2004. <laughs> And uh, won the Tony for Best Musical that year, and then uh, several years later, uh, picked up stakes and and moved to the other side of Eighth Avenue. And there's they've been there mm-hmm. now for about ten years, yeah. which I think is fantastic. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing a happen to be doing a show with the guy who directed Avenue Q, Jason Moore, and um, uh, I, and I asked him if he thought that uh, it made sense, and he said, Yeah, 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 you should, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. So I'm very excited. I'm also excited because we have a great company of actors. Some of them have been in the show before. Some of them have been in the show playing other parts, and now they're playing different parts. And uh, it's a really, really good group of people. Uh, I'm rehearsing a show in the same building where this new company of Jersey Boys is rehearsing, so I can go up there and and uh, and stick my nose in the room every now and then, and I can tell you that they're uh, it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be really good. Now, Jersey Boys was your Broadway debut as a playwright, book writer, correct? Correct. <laughs> and uh, I hear a but coming. No, no, well, no. In my I, experience, nothing, nothing that is said before the word but really counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just watched that, saw that a couple days ago too. No, my but isn't that I am really as as somebody who is older myself and is a writer also. I am please. I, I personally watch everybody who's you know twenty five, thirty, you know, waltz on to Broadway anymore, and I'm like, Arr! oh. But I know you weren't a spring chicken when you got on to Broadway. Oh, no, no, I'm not trying. Stop to, trying to butter me up. But, <laughs> oh, but, but, flattery, but, flattery. But no, when I, when I was looking at the dates, especially coming in here, I'm like, oh wow, this this gives me hope that you know. Life well, is. that's why I said, if, if I can lose three times, so can you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, it's nice of you to point out that I am uh, old. That might be the cracking sound <laughs> in my water bottle. That was my water bottle, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Um, 
I, but I wasn't sitting around yeah, and doing you know, nothing. I, you need I, to understand that. Yeah, I mean, the, I was I'm trying to. Yeah. I was tr- keeping the wolf from the door for many years. And, and that's what I'm wondering. So, what like led up to, you know, Broadway for all those out there who are still leading up to Broadway, which is ninety nine point nine percent of the writers. Well, out. I I'll give you the thumbnail, um, or the hangnail. Uh, I I. I was uh, I was born in New York City and and grew up here and and I saw my first Broadway show when I was three, so Broadway for me was uh, I think from the time I was three. My mother claims that I sat there very quietly. It was the first time in three years that I had actually not made a sound. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, of course, uh, theater tickets in those days were ninety cents. So, um, so it with was inflation. So it was, was cheaper. <laughs> it was actually yeah. cheaper to. Keep taking me to the theater than to hire a babysitter, <laughs> and um, and she and and that way she got to see shows and I was quiet, so mm-hmm. it was a win-win, and I fell in love with the theater and uh, and never uh, looked back. So to me, the theater was always the be-all and the end-all. Loved it. Um, it you know I think it kept me alive as a teenager uh, when I was going through all of the crazy teenage stuff. Can you say bullshit on a podcast? You, you can say anything. I was going you through want. all the crazy teenage bullshit, <laughs> and um, and uh, and I think uh, it was probably Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince, and Michael Bennett who kept me alive, literally. Uh, and um, I thought I'm going to be an actor, and I uh, I thought that uh, in spite of the fact that my folks, as much as they loved the theater, they they didn't love the idea of my uh, having a career in the theater, so. <clears throat> they would clip out articles about how many actors were unemployed and things like that. I went away to college and uh, was uh, uh, was uh, having a perfectly fine time, uh, but I, it was upstate New York at Cornell, and there was a very, very bad winter uh, in the winter of uh, 75. And um, and I thought, I gotta get, I, I, I gotta get out of the countryside. I just can't handle all of this countryside. The cows were freezing in the snow, and it, I, I, I got to get out of here. I was a junior in college, but I applied to graduate school anyway, um, a place called Yale Drama School, because I'd heard that that mm. was the place to go if you wanted to be a, a good actor. It's an okay school. So I applied to Yale Drama School um, and, uh, and against in, in, uh, impossible odds, uh, was accepted. I was accepted at the age of 19, uh, you, you know, which was extraordinary twice. First of all, I had no experience as an actor. I'm sure I had no talent as an actor, but they saw something in me, um, you know, in terms of the way they cast a, each incoming group of people. Um, but usually actors went out, experimented in the world, had a bit of a career, figured out what they were bad at, and then came to Yale to learn to be better. I was just uh, a raw clay and uh, uh, I somehow got into this class and uh, spent three years at uh, Yale uh, Drama School. And on the day that I um, got out, um, I took the train from New Haven to New York and auditioned for a Broadway show and was cast. Wow. (laughs) And uh, that was in May of 1979. And, um, And on September 4th of 1979, I was fired from that Broadway show. Uh, and that was devastating, um, and I uh, once again was, uh, you know, had one foot out the window, and I thought, what on earth am I going to do? I had I had taken an apartment. I my agent dropped me because he said you must be a pain in the ass. They fired you, and um, you know I had big existential issues, and I also had uh, uh, an empty stomach, and I thought, um, uh, what am I going to do? And a friend of mine who was a uh, publicist. Uh, no longer alive, 
um, hired me at $75 a week to write pitch letters for him and to um, pick up Agnes DeMille every morning um, and uh, uh, take her to rehearsals for a revival of Oklahoma that was uh, uh, happening at the Palace Theater, um, starring uh, Lawrence Guitard and Christine Andreas, and featuring Christine Ebersole in her first oh, Broadway show, wow. and Harry Groner. They were the, um, they were the second bananas, Ado Annie and uh, Will Parker. And when I say uh, picking up Agnes DeMille, I literally mean <laughs> picking up Agnes DeMille. I went to her home every morning. She'd had a stroke, so she wasn't mobile. So I would go to her apartment, and I would pick her up in my arms, and I would take her down to the car, and I, we would drive up to the palace, and then I would pick her up, and I would walk her down the aisle <laughs> and up onto the stage. And at the end of the day, I would do that in reverse. And in the meantime, I would write pitch letters for this press agent who was you know, looking to increase his his business. And, and, and I lived on that $75 a week for uh, a few weeks. And then I, I heard that uh, Tommy Toon uh, was directing a play, a Carol Churchill play called Nine. And of course, having gone through drama school, I knew that Carol Churchill was a writer of note. And I decided somehow or other, I got Tommy Toon's address. And I put my little um, headshot and my sad little resume into a thing with a note saying, I know I'm going to be great in this play. I've, it's this, this is the part I should be, and this is what I should do. And I went to Yale and all that stuff. This kind of nerve that you only have when you're 23 years yeah. old. And I, I pushed it under his door, and I turned around to stand up to go back to the elevator, and the door across the hall opened, and out came the guy who had been my tennis counselor at sleepaway camp when I was a little boy, <laughs> a guy named Steve Rubell. He, I, of course, knew it was Steve Rubell because after he was my tennis counselor, he became like the most famous person in the world because mm -hmm. he ran Studio 54. Okay. And it was 1979, and Studio 54 was like still a big thing. And I said to myself, oh, my God, there's Steve Rubell. And we're waiting for the elevator together. And he looks at me and he says, do I know you? And I said, well, you were my tennis counselor about, you know, 15 years ago. And he went, oh, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm trying to act, you know, I'm trying to get a job as an actor. He said... Uh, would you like to be a? Uh, would you like to work at Studio Fifty Four? Um, you know, uh, over, uh, it, late. It's late. It's la it's a late gig. You'd still be able to do auditions and stuff like that. I'll pay you ten dollars an hour. We'll be right back to this interview in just a second. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. Our travel sponsor for this podcast is the University of Providence School of Theater and Business Arts. Learn the art of being an artist, as well as the business of being an artist, in this unique program at the University of Providence. Find out more information at broadwaybullet.com or at uprovidence.edu. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation, DGF, is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. And now back to our program. I'll pay you $10 an hour. And, uh, you know, you'd start working at five in the afternoon and you'd finish around five in the morning. 
And I was living at that time in a little um, studio, a one-room flat on 57th Street. And this Street 54 is obviously on um, 54th Street, I think. Yeah. And um, uh, so I was making my $75 writing pitch letters. And then I was also making $10 an hour working for Steve Rubell as a busboy, mm-hmm. clinking around with empty bottles in what is now 54 Below. Yeah. Um, for all your listeners who, uh, who go to see those uh, acts there, that used to be the... Um, the <laughs> used to be... A really Tom, scary, yeah. really scary basement at Studio Fifty Four, and 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 uh, and uh, whilst I was uh, juggling those two jobs, I got uh, I got uh, cast in the um, uh, original uh, company of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and and uh, went up there at the very beginning of nineteen eighty for two years, and then came back with a show from there to uh, to New York. Um, uh, while I was doing that show, I auditioned for a musical that was being uh, that was uh, Joe Papp was producing, uh, that was being written by this uh, crazy talented Canadian genius that no one had ever heard of. Um, uh, but it was some musical about the Red Baron from World War One. This crazy Canadian guy uh, is named Des Mackinoff. So um, I got cast in that musical, and that's how I know Des from all the way back in 1982. And um, while I was doing that show, the people who did the advertising for the public theater where the show was came to the opening night party, and I struck up a conversation with some dude. And he, uh, uh, the next day, um, called the office to find out how to get in touch with me, and I got a phone call from this guy, and he said, my partner is away on vacation. You seem like a funny guy. Do you think you could write funny headlines for me? And I said, I can't know. (laughs) What do you mean, fine? I don't do that. That's not what I do. And he said, I'll pay you $100. Now, I was getting $149 a week to be in this show about the Red Baron at the public theater, plus an extra $20 uh, because I was the dance captain. And um, so, you know, but $100 in, you know, in 1982 was, uh, you know, a life-saving amount of money. It meant that, you know, I could get some, buy some cans of tuna or something, you know. It's hard. Eating was hard in New York City, even in those days for $169 a week. And um, so I said, I, I, I take it back. I can write funny headlines. I can write funny headlines. And so on August 23rd, 1982, I, I, I went up to Sereno Coin, uh, which was then called Sereno Coin and Nappy, uh, a, a very small, nascent, breakaway advertising agency at that time um, with about 10 people there, a small little office. And I was asked to write some funny headlines for um, Annie. <laughs> and uh, and a Marvin Hamlish benefit that was happening in Texas, and uh, at the end of the day, I went to get my hundred dollars, and the guy said, "Do you think you'd come back tomorrow? Because I've got some more stuff for you to do." And I thought, "Well, he is paying me a hundred dollars, so I guess I'll I'll do it." And that happened <laughs> on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and on Friday, I finally said, "Look, you know, I, you've gotten your hundred dollars worth. I, I can't do this anymore." <laughs> and he said, "All right, let me give you a check." And he gave me a check for five hundred dollars. Yeah. He meant. $100 a day. <laughs> I thought my head was going to explode. So I said, do you, do you need me next week? And, and, and he said, yeah. So I went for a second week. And by then, I knew everyone who was working at the agency. And I thought, this is so, this is like fantastic. You know, you get to, you make like silly jokes and they pay you $100 a day. This was, you know, my ship had come mm-hmm. in. Uh, and then he said, you don't need to come back because my partner is coming back from her holiday. And uh, so that was the end of that. And the show was finishing at the public and I was getting ready to go back to finding my next act, acting job. And then I got a call from the woman who 
uh, was the, uh, uh, the, this guy's partner and the creative director named Nancy Coyne. And um, she said, uh, I hear that we should meet. You should come up and, and uh, you know, let's have a conversation. And I went up, and uh, while I was waiting for her to come out of a meeting, I went to an art director who had a problem, and I wrote some headlines for him. And he came into Nancy's office and said, here, what about these? And she said, who wrote this? And, well, the guy who's waiting outside to see you. So she waved me, and she said, you're hired. You know, but I, I could, you, know, like, you come and work for me two days a week. And I thought, fantastic. And three weeks later, she offered me a full-time job, and... And uh, on the very same day that I was offered a, a season at the Guthrie, uh, but for personal reasons, I thought it would be good to stay in New York. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, I, uh, and I did. And that turned into a, two decades of work in advertising. Oh, yeah. So um, while I know I'm old, yeah. I, while I know I'm very, very old. <laughs> I really did not in mean my, to in like my, come in up. My, in my theater writing yeah. career, I'm really very, yeah. very young. I just took this, you know, uh, twenty-year detour, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then another, uh, you know, decade. Uh, I I I spent uh, as a creative consultant at a, a motion picture studio in in California, because uh, it was a good way to sort of stop doing advertising mm -hmm. and start doing something else, which was actually writing. And while I was writing, um, and do you know doing uh, uh, you know joke polishes or star polishes or you know redrafting that sort of thing. Out in California, my phone ran, rang one day, um, and it was someone who had been a client of mine at the agency, and he uh, had obviously called everyone that he ever knew, <laughs> alive or dead, and finally came to me and said, would you like to do a, a, a musical with the Four Seasons music? And I said, I love Vivaldi. What a great idea. <laughs> and he said, no, I don't mean Vivaldi. I mean Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And I said, really? Why? Would, why? He said, well, Mamma Mia just opened. It was a big hit. We could do Mamma Mia with the Four Seasons music. Well, suppose we did. Well, that's not really that interesting. Why? Well, because somebody already did it. And, and I'm in Burbank. He said, well, if you come to, when, you, when are you going to come to New York? I told him, he said, would you be willing to have lunch with Frankie Valli and Bob Gordio, the principal members of the original group? And uh, I said, can I bring a friend? And he said, sure, just have lunch and see what you think. My friend uh, is uh, Marshall Brickman, the legendary Oscar-winning screenwriter who uh, had, uh, he and his wife had become uh, uh, friends with uh, me and my husband, and, we, um, and so we knew each other, we liked each other, and I always thought, I, you know, I, we flirted with the idea of writing something together, and uh, we both assumed it would be a film, because uh, I was working in California, and he's a famous film writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said, how would you like to write a Broadway musical? And he said, I, I don't know how to do that. And I said, neither do I. <laughs> Nobody's going to pay us, so, you know, we'll see. We'll only waste our own time if it, if it crashes. So uh, we went and met Bob and Frankie, and, um, and uh, that's how I got my foot in the door. It was just by answering the phone one day and having wow. some guys <laughs> say, you know, would you like to do it? So I, I'd like to be able to tell you it was all my talent, but it, it didn't have anything to do with my talent. It was just answering the phone. So well, but, I, like so, you said, but as you said, though, it was a former client. It was somebody who, so even though you're maybe specifically out of the thing, but in the advertising and writing creative headlines, it still was seeds coming back to you. Yeah, it, I mean, it felt very, it, it felt, there's a line in Jersey yeah. Boys about the stars being in alignment. Bob Crew, who was their producer, 
and uh, the frequent lyricist with Bob Gordio um, for their major hits um, was a uh, an astrology nut. And, uh, you know, sort of like Nancy Reagan, you know, there were days when he wouldn't go out because mm-hmm. the Mars was in retrograde or something. Um, and uh, so there's a, you know, so we have this, we have this idea of the stars being in alignment, but with Jersey Boys, the star, with Jersey Boys, the show, the, the stars were in alignment. I'm, I mean, Marshall and I uh, wrote some things that Bob and Frankie liked. So they said, okay, what do we do now? And I started going to my former clients who were all the producers of Broadway. Um, and no one was interested except for the people who produced the show, the Dodgers. And Des Makinoff had been a Dodger. And Des Makinoff mm-hmm. was someone that I knew from 20 years before. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, turns out that Des is the very first LP that he owned as a little kid growing up north of Toronto was Sherry and 11, mm-hmm. 11 Other Hits by the Four Seasons. So it was, you know, it was serendipity. He also had a slot at La Jolla Playhouse, where he was then the artistic director. And, uh, you know, he said, well, can you write it really fast <laughs> so that we can do this, you know, in the slot? So we, we didn't know that it was supposed to take a long time to write it, so we wrote it really fast. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly, the, you know, we were in rehearsal in a basement in Southern California. And then people, you know, well, nobody's ever going to come and see this thing. <laughs> and then people came and they liked it and... And uh, we opened on Broadway. It seemed amazing to me that any of it was happening. But Des and Sergio Chihio, the choreographer, and Ron Melrose, the music director, and Richard Hester, the production stage manager, now the production supervisor, um, the, the cast, Marshall and I, everybody seemed to be working at a really good level and working really, really well together. Everyone was on the same train. You know, we all kind of had the same idea of what it would be. And... Uh, it was kind of a magical experience. You know, there's no formula, mm-hmm. which of course we learned <laughs> with the Adams family. There's no, there's no formula for success. This is why Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote Allegro. Yeah. You know, it, this is why Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote, you know, Starlight Express. There are, there are, if there was a formula, then everything would be a hit. There is no formula. That's why it's art, right? And you don't know. You think you're doing everything right. But you don't know. Nobody knows. You just hope that you guess right more than you guess wrong with the help of the audience who, when they start coming, of course, are collectively the smartest people in the room. And um, uh, so with Jersey Boys, it was just this kind of miraculous experience where everything, everybody was, everyone who was involved Mm -hmm. was firing on all cylinders and the stars were in alignment. We were very, very lucky. The timing was good. We got a theater in when, you know, show, it was really hard to get theaters. I mean, somehow or other, we just sort of squeaked in and, and, uh, and, and got very, very, uh, very, very lucky. Yeah. And, and there. And lucky so enough there. that it was... So that's how you do it. You have to be very, very massive. lucky. You've got to be very, very lucky. And it's also good if you know, you know, if you know, if you care about trying to get the right words in the right order, as Tom Stoppard would say, and, and nudge the world a little. You know, um, uh, but in, you know, in, 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 having come off of that gig in California, what I quickly learned was um, if you have a good story and have characters that people care about, um, then uh, you should proceed. If you, can't, if you don't know what your story is and your characters aren't particularly interesting, then you should find something else to write about. Arthur Lawrence, the great um, late Arthur Lawrence, 
um, said to me once, oh, I was talking about something. He said, well, what's it about? And I started to tell him the plot. He said, no, 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 I don't care what the plot, I don't care about the plot. Tell me in one sentence what's it about. And if you can't answer in one sentence, then stop and figure out what the answer to this question is. What is it about? What do you want the audience to be talking about when they leave the theater? You must know what that is. You must have an answer to that question in order to be able to write anything. And um, uh, so, and I, it's a it's a, a very true piece of advice and a very good piece of advice. So I pass that along to um, to anybody listening who wants to do it. Um, you know, but in in short, that's just listen to the people who were really good at it, like Arthur Lawrence or Peter Stone or. Uh, uh, Stephen Sondheim, of course, um, you know, Lynn Miranda. Look at what they do and figure out what it is, try to figure out what it is that makes it so wonderful to you. And learn from that, not to copy it, but learn how they manage to tell a really, really good story with characters that are so compelling that you actually want to lean into that story. And then hope for good luck. Now, from what you just said in there, as lucky and easy as the process was for Jersey Boys, something in there when you mentioned Adam's family leads me to believe, and plus another conversation I had with uh, one of the other members of the writing team on the podcast, that Adam's family wasn't quite as easy of a process. Well, it was, I mean, I, I, I don't think easy or your, is, easy is your word, not mine, yeah, okay, for Jersey yeah. Boys. I just, I think I said blessed. Yeah, blessed, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, and, and in that way, sometimes things are not blessed. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is, uh, it's, it seemed, everything seemed to be going really, really mm-hmm. well on the Adams family until suddenly it seemed as though that, yeah. like that was no longer true. I can't identify the moment yeah. when that happened, but I, but I remember it happening on a couple of different nights. I remember thinking, this is great. This is really funny. Mm-hmm. People were weeping with laughter in the you know, there's many, many stages before you get yeah. to rehearsal. But, you know, we had Nathan Lane sitting at a table reading and, you know, with tears streaming down his face. We Then we're in rehearsal with Nathan Lane and B.B. Newworth, and people are just, like, falling out of their chairs laughing. And you think, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be so great. Then you go to Chicago and everything, like, you know, the first time the orchestra read-down happened, you know, people were weeping with joy. I'm sure the person that you're talking about, mm. re- referring to, is Andrew and, you know, he, he's, like, he wrote this amazing score, and it was a big, big, big orchestra, genius arrangements and orchestrations, and, and everybody was so excited. And then an audience came, and while they were laughing a lot, there was something happened. There was like a, a chill, a palpable chill in the air. What, what was that? What was that? And you think, oh, you're just trying to put it out of your mind and do your work. You know, okay, we've got to make this better. You've got to make this shorter. You've got to figure out, you know, mm-hmm. writing Peter Stone said is is mostly rewriting in the theater, you know, and um, and that's what you do. Most most of it is rewriting, constant rewriting, uh, in the time that you have. And um, uh, and and somehow the temperature of the whole thing started to change, and we couldn't quite figure out what it was, but it definitely changed. And then by the time we came into New York, unfortunately mm-hmm. for us. Um, something else had happened, a, f- a fluke, uh, on, that, you know, no one would have associated, but it was, you know, um, Spider-Man was supposed to be the big musical mm-hmm. that spring. Yeah. Spider-Man was coming in, and everybody was going, and we were going to be like this little comedy that came in mm-hmm. through the back door, you know, and kind of sat down, and 
was amusing, and that's all our our goal was just to make people laugh. That's a and, that's a fine. And goal. instead, what happened was the. Every, all of the focus, all of the energy of the of the, the of public attention that had been on Sp- Spider Man suddenly turned to our little Adams Family show, and and it kind of, it kind of, uh, it just changed. It changed the expectations of the season. It changed the expectation of of the press. It changed the expectation of the audience, and it was uh, and it it became a very kind of uh, dramatic. Uh, uh, experience, but certainly, uh, it was. Uh, it seems it seems really obnoxious to you know to complain about uh, a Broadway show not going yeah. as well as we'd hoped to someone like you who you know no, aspires no. to losing three no, no, uh, no, three, I, t- I, three I, Tony nominations. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not that hopeful. No, I I understand. It I don't want to. I don't want to try to. I don't want to say anything that level would dampen your dampen you know, your spirits. And you whatever know. level you're at. No, um, but I, I imagine at least, despite all this, you know. Stuff it's turned into quite the smash on the well again I can tell you speaking to theater. Andrew uh, it is the it's the number one most produced <laughs> musical in North America <laughs> he said dodging the bullets from Disney uh, well you know because yeah. you'd think it would be Be- yeah. Beauty and the Beast which I'm sure it was for you know fifty years um, or uh, uh, you know another Disney musical but actually it is uh, it is the Adams Family that seems to be done and done and done and done and done and good for it we we had. We had a, a great producer and a great director who, after the show opened on Broadway, when most people just leave town, um, uh, said, uh, for the national tour, why don't we rewrite the show to be more of the show that you guys wanted it to be? What did you want it to be? Can we, you say that with the, the, when, you, when you say that? Can... Well, we ju- we, we, the show, when I said on, uh, earlier that uh, everyone who was working on Jersey Boys felt like we were, on, we were all on the same train. Um, going in the same direction. Um, with the Adams Family, it, it turned out that we weren't all on the same train. I think the, the, the writers, Marshall and Andrew and I, were on the same train. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we were on the same vehicle that the directors were on, the original directors were on. And, um, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, conflict, which wasn't necessarily good for the show. Sometimes conflict is great because you, want, you, know, you argue things into yeah. existence in the theater. So arguing is not a bad thing ever. But we didn't have the same show in mind. And, uh, and that uh, conflict was not healthy. Uh, uh, those directors uh, left the project and they were replaced by Jerry Zachs. And, uh, and Jerry got that production together to open on Broadway. But it wasn't really the show that Marshall and Andrew and I were uh, were thought we were going to write. Uh, and uh, we had then the opportunity to redirect it into the story that we wanted it to be and to tell that story in a better way. <clears throat> and um, and the producer... How significant are the rewrites from Broadway to well, what is now Well, there's five new songs in the score and, and, um, and the plot, while the, the general, the broadest outlines of the plot are the same, the, it's it you know it was it was largely rewritten. I mean, I would say you know seventy five percent of the show oh, wow. was seventy five percent of various elements of the show were brand new, and um, and we opened it down in uh, New Orleans in two thousand eleven, and um, and that's the show now that's uh, that is so popular. 
Well, it's, but it's good to hear that you got you got the chance to go and, and turn it into the show you want. It was is great. It, is, it was is, great is, to be given the chance, and yeah. it was great that we all wanted to do it. I mean, yeah. and none of us none of us ran you know ran home and hid with the cover under the covers, you know, which was the first instinct when you get a really terrible review in the New York Times. You know, you know, you're it's a certain form of egomania. I realized to think that everyone is looking at you like you have a sign on your back that says asshole but you sure do feel that way you feel very very toxic uh and it would have been very easy to just go on to other things but we we uh we stuck with it and that was kind of exciting you know we're all we're like three stubborn jews so you know we 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 decided to well with jerry that's four stubborn jews so you know we wanted to um we we felt a responsibility to the producer to the producers to um, to deliver for them since they were digging deep into their pockets to give us the ability to re-rehearse a show that was yeah. that it, or to rehearse a yeah. show as opposed to re-rehearse a show. Yeah. One thing to recreate something for a tour, but, but we rehearsed a, a new show for for the for the tour, uh, which was uh, you know which was quite an investment on the part of the producers. Yeah. So all credit to them, Stuart Oaken and and uh, 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 Roy Furman. And uh, then moving on to, uh, and, I, and I really have to say, you know, I mean, I actually never got a chance to see Jersey Boys with all the crazy hype over the thing. Well, and I then, don't even know why I'm speaking to you. But I did get a chance to see, and I did love, love, love I mean, it's, it's probably easily one of my top five or higher plays of all time, Peter and the Starcatcher, which for me, uh, you know, you know I, I, I don't like Glitz and Big, and, and there's sets. I like this intimacy of storytelling with actors, and I saw this play that I felt just truly encapsulated everything I'd always liked doing as an artist and a director, and I just felt it was truly magical. The storytelling, I mean, I know it was an adaptation from a book, I haven't read it, but the way the story was told, both the story itself and the way you chose to utilize the actors, uh, I, I am in awe of the writing of that show. Thank you. Thank you. Not, that's not a question, so I, yeah, but, but, I, I don't have any answer. But, well, but, 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 so my question is, well, then how did this come into place? Because this is, this is definitely an a different situation. Uh, it was an, another accident for me. Uh, uh, one of the things I did at mm -hmm. Disney um, on the weekends was read a lot of scripts and also read books in galley form. Because on Monday mornings, the studios bid on scripts and novels. And uh, a novel came across the transom one weekend called Peter and the Starcatchers, plural, uh, and uh, literally uh, galleys. And uh, the first chapter of the book um, was uh, a description of some urchins uh, traveling uh, down from some place in the British countryside to London. And there was something about the description of the coach uh, that made me think of uh, what the Royal Shakespeare Company did with uh, uh, the life and adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, um, beginning in uh, uh, late 1979, uh, leading up to when they presented it at the Old Witch in London in 1980, and then uh, it came to uh, Broadway in 1981, and sort of set New York on fire. Uh, it, this unlikely act of taking a, a, a large, unwieldy 
picaresque, rangy novel and adapting it to the stage. Well, Nicholas Nickleby was eight and a half hours long, 15 mm -hmm. hours when they first started. Um, uh, so I wasn't thinking about Peter and the Starcatchers mm -hmm. as a play, but I was struck by that first chapter. Uh, and uh, the rest of the novel really was um, written uh, with a, an eight-year-old reader in mind, uh, written by Dave Barry, the brilliant Dave Barry, and the, and the sumptuously talented uh, Ridley Pearson. Um, who are uh, inde independently great uh, and successful uh, writers of uh, long-form writers who who are uh, in a, a rock band together and their families are friends and the two families the Barry and R and Pearson families were vacationing at Disney World and uh, and uh, Ridley took his eight-year-old daughter on the Peter Pan ride and that night uh, as he was tucking her into bed she said how did Peter Pan learn how to fly. And the next day, he and Dave were, you know, the families were met for breakfast, and he said, oh, you know, my kid asked me this thing, and I, and I thought we should have an answer to that question. We should, maybe we should, maybe we should do a Peter Pan sequel. And then, the, and they said, oh, all right, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't, maybe we will. The families, Dave Barry's family lives in Miami, Ridley Pearson's family lives in St. Louis. They started sending emails back and forth to each other, and, and then it was sending chapter mm -hmm. Back and chapters back and forth to each other, and suddenly they had a manuscript. It's published by Hyperion, which is the publishing division of, of Disney, and that's how it came to my desk. It also, at the same time, came to the desk of Thomas Schumacher, who at the time was the president of Disney Feature Animations and also the president of Disney Theatrical Division. And um, as the president of Feature Animation, he read it and optioned it. And a year later or something, I, uh, I would uh, had occasion to see Tom Schumacher, and he said, did you by any chance ever read this Peter and the Starcatchers novel? I said, yeah, yeah, I saw it in galley form. He said, well, you know, we optioned it for feature animation, but it's not going to happen. So um, I wonder if, I, wa I wonder what you think about, um, do you think that there's a theater idea in there? And I said, well, it's funny you mentioned that. Yes, I do. And he said, because, you know, the option's about to expire, so I'll re-up it. Um, if uh, you can get it to uh, the guy who's running Williamstown Theatre Company, it was easy for me to do that, because the guy who's running Williamstown Theatre Company it, it was the guy I was married to. So um, uh, I said, uh, uh, and it wasn't accidental yeah. that, Tom had that, yeah. that Tom had that impulse, yeah. because the uh, the the... The fellow I'm talking about, Roger Rees, was the guy who played Nicholas Nickleby in Nicholas Nickleby, and uh, you know was sort of uh, central to the evolution of that uh, great stage opus. Trevor Nunn and John Kerr directed, and David Edgar adapted uh, for the 46 actors of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, uh, so I said to Raj, read this novel and uh, see if you uh, want to do a Nicholas Nickleby type thing with it. And he, uh, running the theater, was also directing three shows that summer at, the, at Williamstown. And he said, I don't think I'm going to have time to do it myself, but there's this, uh, you know, your friend Alex Timbers, who had been the, uh, the assistant director on Jersey Boys, which is how we knew Raj, um, was up uh, at Williamstown developing a new musical with the late, lamented, brilliant Michael Friedman, who just passed away 
um, uh, based on uh, the life of Andrew Jackson, which would become Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. And while Andrew, uh, while um, Alex and uh, Michael were working on Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and Roger was doing, um, I think, Anything Goes with Stephanie Lawrence, um, the two of them met to talk about what they might do with this Peter and the Starcatchers mm-hmm. thing. There was no budget. They had non-equity interns uh, assembled in a room, and somebody opened a closet to see what was inside, and there was a bucket, and there was a broom, and there was some rope. And uh, they said, okay, just using these things, let's try to take a discrete section of this novel about a girl going from the deck down below into the bowels of the ship, and let's figure out how we would do that. Staging. And they staged a sequence. Um, and, uh, and the, uh, folks from Disney were going to come up and take a look at it. And Roger said, would you write, uh, something for the actors to say, um, about how the, how narration would be used and make it about how now, how, what we did with narration in Nickleby. Um, so I wrote a little prologue for the actors, um, to describe what it would be like if they actually got to do this as a play. And, um, the Disney folks went up to see this workshop. Uh, this was in June of 07. And uh, they were interested enough to say, we'll give you literally a hundred bucks to do another workshop in the New York in the, in the fall. Um, and you take it, you know, keep, push it down some other Disney, you know, this time had no uh, experience doing plays. So this is all happening before Adam's family then. Yes. So, okay. Well, Adam's family was being written, you know, uh, Marshall and I were also doing another musical uh, at the Goodman theater at the same time that Tommy Toon was directing. Um, You know, you know, life was happening. Um, I had an asbestos, we had an asbestos uh, issue in our apartment. We had to move to 48th street, you know, for a year. It was all, that was all 2007. And, and, uh, uh, at any rate, in October of 07, uh, Roger and Alex reassembled the interns, now in New York, at a church on 86th Street, and started to work on scenes. But there was, nothing, there was no dialogue in the novel that was usable because Roger and Alex had determined that they wanted this to be a play for an adult audience. They didn't want it to be children's theater. So once again, just as a friend of the court, they said, would you write some scenes? And I wrote some scenes, and then Dave and Ridley came to that presentation with the, uh, Tom Schumacher and some people from Disney. And um, at the end of which, Dave Barry, you know, who is like one of my comedy writing icons, mm-hmm. idols, or some I word, yeah. um, <laughs> said, uh, who wrote all that stuff the actors were saying? And none of that's in the book. And I thought, mm, you know, I guess I really, I better edge my way to the door. And then, and then he said, because I really liked it. And I was like, like ran back in the middle of the room. And, um, and Tom Schumacher said, well, that guy over there. And he said, well, uh, are you going to write the play? And I turned to Tom and I said, I don't know, Tom, am I going to write the play? And he said, yes, he's going to write the play. And that's how I got to write the play. I, it was absolutely accidental. I, I didn't know anything about Peter Pan, really. I had never been a big mm-hmm. Peter Pan fan. Mm-hmm. I'd never read the play Peter Pan. All I had ever seen was Mary Martin and, you know, Jerome Robbins' black and white TV show flying around on a cable. Well, so now I went and I read the, I read the play, and I, was, and I thought, oh, James Barry, uh, that's interesting. He wrote some other things. I read some other things that he wrote, he, and he was a fascinating person, and the whole history of how he wrote the play became interesting to me. 
and um, and uh, he had this uh, particular way of writing Peter Pan, which was lots of a little, lots of alliteration, lots of um, what were at the time uh, meta theatrical references, mm -hmm. some songs and sea shanties, uh, um, anachronisms. Uh, you know, there was a real uh, relationship between the characters in the play and what he thought would be the audience for the play, which was an adult audience. Mm -hmm. And I and I thought, okay, well, what David Ridley wrote is a is sort of a prequel to Peter Pan, but they didn't connect the dots between the Peter Pan mythology that we all know mm -hmm. and the characters that they created for the story. And I thought that's something that would be interesting for me as a writer to sort of help make up connective tissue between what James Barry did and what a hundred years later Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson did. And uh, and all in such a way that Roger and Alex would be able to do it in the story theater, poor theater mm -hmm. techniques that Roger was steeped in from his years at the Royal Shakespeare Company and Alex was steeped in as the, as the artistic director of his uh, Frere Cabor uh, Corbusier Company here in New York. For the same reason, there was never a lot of money, so you had mm. to leverage the imagination of the audience in a way that I always felt thrown because look, I went to Yale Drama School and, yeah. that's, and that's what we learned there too. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of the communism of the theater where everybody gets to do everything has always been the sort of thing that I love. And um, uh, it's, so we embarked on this uh, adventure together and, and um, uh, because uh, Roger had... Uh, hired uh, Chris Ashley to direct some things up at Williamstown, and Chris had uh, just that same year taken over La Jolla Playhouse, um, he very nicely gave us a slot there in the Page to Stage program, and we went out there in the, now it's the very beginning of 09, we went out there the beginning of 09 and, uh, and did the play for 24 performances and lots of rewrites. Here's what we learned, Peter the Starcatchers, we're gonna drop the S, because, uh, you know, because I want to make it really a story about this boy and this girl who become Peter and a star catcher at the end of the story, figured out more things to leave out from the novel, a better organizing principle, which helped with all of that inclusion and exclusion decisions. And, uh, and, uh, and Alex got us in front of uh, Jim Nicola at uh, Theater Workshop because he's like the groovy, trendy Alex mm -hmm. Timbers, you know, and, and, um, and suddenly uh, New York Theatre Workshop is doing a play about Peter Pan. It seemed insane. I mean, this is, you know, the theatre where Rent started. Mm -hmm. But um, there was something about the alchemy of uh, Roger and Alex uh, and then uh, uh, Stephen Hoggett, who joined as the uh, you know, choreographer, um, with the cast that made it something that was so special. It was really kind of wonderful. It was really kind of magical in that, in that little theater on 4th Street. And um, uh, what seemed impossible to me was that um, Ben Brantley came to see it and, and wrote a rave review. And suddenly we thought, oh, holy cow, you know, this play's gonna move to Broadway. And then it turned out not to be so easy to move to Broadway because it was a play with uh, mm -hmm. 12 actors. And uh, there aren't many plays on Broadway yeah. that are done outside of Lincoln Center or Manhattan Theater Club or 
roundabout where you see a cast that large anymore. So it was a real impediment to moving forward with the production, and, uh, but then we found producers who were willing to do it. And uh, uh, another, you know, incredibly lucky break was that uh, we got a theater when the cast was available and people were turning down jobs and, you know, just to stay free to do it because people really loved People really loved um, the house that Roger and Alex well, and, built. And in the, this Broadway climate, too, not only was it a cast of 12 people, but you didn't have New York, I mean, you didn't have Los Angeles movie stars headlining it, which... No, what um, we had was we had a, we had a company of actors who, who had become really um, fond of each other and um, who were quite brilliant uh, as, a, as a team. It was a great example of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. They were all wonderful yeah as individuals, but together it was, a, it was just a great, good time in the theater and came along, I think, at the right time mm -hmm. and, um, and was such a happy, happy, happy uh, experience. And I would tell you that, uh, um, off the record, because I know yeah. this is just you and me talking, <laughs> um, uh, the, the wonderful, spectacular, gorgeous, and saintly Celia Keenan-Bolger, um, who played the... Um, uh, one of the two heroes yeah. in this story, um, the star catcher of the title. Um, uh, when she, when we finished on Broadway, she went to um, she went to the American Repertory Theater where I was a charter member uh, to do um, the Glass Menagerie with Cherry Jones. Wonderful production came to Broadway the following fall. And um, but there was a, a layover between the the run at the ART and when they were going to do it. And <clears throat> Celia was back in New York and we met for dinner. And um, I, I first knew Cherry at the ART back in 1980. We did, uh, we were in As You Like It together. And uh, so, uh, you know, a bunch of us from Starcatcher had taken a road trip up to Cambridge to see play, went back and said hello afterwards. And But now they're, everyone's back in New York and and uh, Celia was, uh, we were talking about Cherry and how great she is. And, and she said, oh, it was, such a, it was such a good experience. And Cherry turned to me in the dressing room one night and she said, isn't this just the most wonderful experience of your life? And Celia said, and I said, well, no. The most wonderful experience of my life was being in the story catcher. <laughs> and I loved her so much at that moment because I think... I think it was like a very, very special moment in all of our lives. I think that probably every one of those 12 people and everybody um, who was on the creative team and everybody who was backstage, even the ushers in the theater, I must tell you, when I, mm -hmm. when I go to the Brooks Atkinson Theater now, they, these, these, the ushers and the house management people, you know, treat me like a relative. It was a really, really special, magical time. And 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 made a big profound uh, difference in our, all of our lives. So I'm glad you liked it, yeah. and I, I liked it a lot. And you answered like uh, all the I, questions. I how did too. the fact that you wrote it with kind of the actors and the directors in progress answered a lot of my questions because it was so seamless in the writing and the and the execution. And yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. It was I you yeah. know we got out to La Jolla with a play that was like three hours long. And um, and not very good, and I I just didn't write it very well. And watching them do it, and being in that page to stage situation where 
you're not building, you're not sort of gearing up for an opening night and the press doesn't come. So you actually watch the show with mm. an audience. And, um, you know, as Neil Simon, uh, I'm, 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 I'm super lucky. I'm, I'm dropping these names like, yeah. I, like I'm some sort of famous person. I'm not. Mm. But because I worked uh, in, uh, uh, at the ad agency for 20 years, mm. I got to work on, show, you know, 310 musicals and many, 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 many dozens of plays. And I got to be in rooms with the people who were the gods of the theater. And, um, you know, there was Neil Simon sitting there with a yellow pad taking notes. And I said, why are you taking notes? And he said, why, why, wouldn't, I, why wouldn't I try to get a better grade on a test today than I got yesterday? And I thought, wow, Neil Simon thinks that way about rewriting. How, what, what kind of nervy asshole would I be to feel and to think anything less about my writing? Like you have a chance to make it better, make it better. So page to stage um, process was great for me yeah. because I'm not Neil Simon. I need time to figure out what sucks. And yeah. then I need time to figure out a way to try to make it better. And every now and then I might actually succeed at making, at nudging something in the right yeah. direction. Um, it, it, it was, you know, it was, what it was, strikes me a lot about your development too is I've been frustrated. I see, you know, you know, and I hear playwrights constantly talk about this whole, you know, workshopping, reading to death, a play. And yeah, it's a and, problem. And I feel the problem isn't just reading to death, but I feel like the readings eliminate what should be a really big portion of a play, which is the visual, and and what is told silently and what is told through acting, and I see, you know, so many writers get insecure about if something comes across because it's not written in the words, and people get comment, and how different do you, th I mean, would, would Peter and the Starcatcher have existed if it didn't get up on its feet? I you think uh, absolutely not, yeah. but, I, but because, yeah. it, you know, you would describe it yeah as it's going to be nothing but a bucket and a piece of rope <laughs> and a few sticks, and they're going to be playing animals and people and doorways and, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, uh, and that's it. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a harebrained scheme that Lucy and Ethel would undertake. <laughs> it just uh, doesn't sound like anything that could be successful. <laughs> but it, from our three different universes, I think, um, and, you know, I would fold Hoggett into that too, um, you know, but but we all of us came from the idea that the the great interactive game on our planet Earth is not something that you hold in your hand. Yeah. It's the theater, which is why we still go, because God knows there are plenty of reasons not to go. Mm -hmm. um, why do we still go, given how many great reasons there are to not participate? We go because... There's some, I think that we're hardwired somehow into this idea of this collective socializing experience of sitting in the dark while somebody tells us a story, whether it's in a cave, sitting around a campfire, whether it's in a theater, watching people saying this bottle is actually a, uh, an umbrella. So I, and then you see an umbrella. As long as the audience understands what the rules are, the audience is more than willing to play along after all. It, it, we do know that it's all make believe up there, yeah. you know. What? But, but when you, what? When, but when you drop a, when you have a holding a blanket in your arms yeah. and and saying, "Oh, sweet little baby," and you drop the blanket and you hear people gasp in the audience, you think you don't think, aren't they stupid? 
because it's obviously a blanket. Yeah. There's obviously no baby. You think, what a wonderful thing the theater is where for in that moment, what we know to be true, we forget. And we believe this illusion in such a, in, in so deeply that we gasp. I think that's just fantastic. And how could you not, how could you know that and see that and not want to work there all your life? So, um, so I do. Yeah. I do. And I recommend it to you. <laughs> and, you know, and while I say I'd love to have the Tonys, I, I am perfectly happy doing it. And I, I left New York with the thing that I'm going to live on my own terms. I get to be creative. I work in a small thing. I do what oh, I want to do. it's all about and you, I, isn't it? It's I, all about I aspire, you. I aspire. I still write. But I'm, 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 I'm not pining. I'm not, like, fretting. Like, I, I am fully aware that where I have placed myself, that, that it is unlikely that my dream of writing a show for Broadway will happen. You never know. It might, <laughs> might happen right now. You know, we, we, we never know who's going to be waiting on the yeah. other side of the door. It's like falling in love. Yeah. You never know. And when you least suspect it, something might just come along that will change your life. So what do you have in the, is there stuff you have in the works that you are willing to talk about yet? Or? Well, I, yeah, sure. Do you, are you, do you want me to do that? <laughs> it just sounds like, it's, you know, it's, it's so tedious to hear what people have in the works because, you know. The, well, let's talk about this. Is there, something, is there something going on in what you have in the works that would be a good fable or piece of advice for other artists who are in the works? Does that mean? <laughs> the trick is, I think, what I learned, what I learned because, you know, I started doing this, as you've mentioned, when I was very old. And, uh, I will and, go down and, in history for calling Rick. I, and, I, and, so I, and I was so excited. To, I was so excited to. I never, I never expected to be a writer. I never trained to be a writer. I never studied to be a writer. I don't even know that. I think your face is going on dartboards in, like, playwrights. I don't even know that, I, I don't even know that I'm a writer. I'm, I'm sort of a collagist. You know, I think I'm a really good listener. I learned to be a good listener. In long meetings at 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 at, at an ad agency where if you, where listening was the only salvation because everyone else was talking, and acquiring a good listening impulse I think is a great way to be a writer because you hear what people are saying and you hear the way they're saying it and voice and characters is you know one of the interesting things for me anyway about writing and I, I, I like, I mean, I think it would be, I, I, I don't think anyone would look at Peter and the Starcatcher and look at Jersey Boys and say, oh, well, those, that's written by the same guy. Yeah, you know, I spent a couple of years working on a project uh, with Bill T. Jones, the great, you know, genius Bill T. Jones. Um, I, I talked to and, him on that. And, uh, and I, uh, and, you know, and I was the only white guy in the room and, um, and I, uh, and somebody came to see it and said, it's amazing. Like you, is, did you really? And I thought that's like a great compliment when people think that you couldn't possibly have written something and you did. Um, but I think you have to really feel passion about something to do with what your project is. And I think, um, I, and I, cause I think it's, it takes a lot out of you. It's a very, it's, it costs a lot to write a, to write for the theater. I mean, it costs a lot of your heart and a lot of your head. And um, a lot of your treasure, you know, and um, one only uh, has so much, I think. And you know, if you're going to devote that and spend that, 
it ought to be on something that you feel a passion for. Um, not maybe not every single aspect of it, but mm -hmm. something about it you should be passionate about, and um, uh, and that can present itself in a uh, unusual way. So I will tell you one. Uh, there's there's one thing that I will talk about because it seems like it's actually happening, and I, I just think like people who talk about stuff that might never happen are kind of you know. <laughs> I, 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 it's I, I'm I'm too inherently. Um, uh, self-effacing to do that but um but uh i'm doing a sh i i was i got a call you know marshall this happened to marshall too i'm sure this happened to um doug mcgrath who wrote the carol king show um you know when you when you write something that's that that people like and is therefore perceived as successful you get asked to do a lot of that again mm -hmm. you know um i'm sure that's i'm sure that's true for directors i'm sure it's true for actors and I can tell you that it was true for um, for me and Marshall, or me and or Marshall, because sometimes we were asked together and sometimes we were asked separately. But there were many um, individuals or representatives of individuals, artists, who came to us and said, hey, well, you know, my story is much more interesting than Frankie Valley, so you should do a show about me. But, you know, I mean, our first show was Jersey Boys, and it was a big hit. And you think, well, you know, you don't want to do the same thing, so you want to do something else. So when those uh, invitations would come my way, I would I would uh, demur if if that's a verb, <laughs> and um, I believe it is. Now. I was called. Uh, I I got a call to meet some guy I didn't know named Floaty Suarez, a name that everyone should know now because it changed my life. Um, a guy I'd never heard of named Floaty Suarez, who said, uh, "Can I take you to lunch? I want to talk to you about a project." And, you know, we work in the theater, so a free lunch is a free lunch. You know, it's, always, it's always worth a, a conversation. <laughs> Go to this restaurant. I meet this guy, nice enough guy. I said, uh, so, you know, when we're chatting, uh, oh, I got your name from Tom Schumacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, you're the guy I should talk to. I said, well, about what? He said, well, I want you to write a, I want you to write a show about Cher. And I said, share? You mean like share? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, oh, I'm like completely the wrong gay man to be doing this. I'm just not the guy to write um, the share show. I'm just not. And he said, uh, but, but, but uh, Tom Schumacher thinks that it would be good. I said, well, it's very sweet of Tom Schumacher to put me up for this thing. But you know why that is. That's because... Jersey Boy's successful, so, you know, so everyone thinks, oh, but, you know, I, I, I don't think I can do it uh, about Cher. And he said, why? I said, well, because everybody knows everything about Cher, you know, like, what don't we know about Cher? Her life is so doc well documented. What, what would you, what could you legitimately charge admission for? To, like, what would people learn about her that we don't already know? Also, she's still out there being yeah. Cher, you know. It feels like it. It feels like it would be sort of campy, and I. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. And uh, you know, thank you, but 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 no. And he said, um, "Well, okay. Can we can 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 I pick your brain about something else?" And it's not an expression that I'm particularly fond of. But he said, uh, uh, "You know, uh, he's a, he's from California." He said, "So these like the Broadway producers, um, you know, Tom Schumacher said, you know, he well he's at Disney. He can't do a musical about Cher." Um, and uh, uh, who do you think I should go to to partner with on this thing? And I said, well, if you think I should write it like the like 
you should find somebody, the least likely person to produce it. Mm -hmm. um, and that would probably be this guy named uh, Jeffrey Seller. Um, Jeffrey had just opened a musical called The Last Ship. And, um, and he said, uh, uh, well, what has he done? I said, well, he just opened a musical called The Last Ship, but the reason that you should partner with him is because he's about to open a musical about um, the man who was represented on your forearm, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. And uh, he said, oh, okay. So, and this is, you know, I, and then I go back to my life and I think that's the end of that. And, um, and about a month later, I, I got a call from Jeffrey Seller, whom I've known for, you know, a long time. And, um, and he said, uh, well, I got this call from Floaty Suarez. <laughs> and he says, he, 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 uh, he, he said you were writing it. And I said, well, if he's writing it, yeah. I guess I might be interested because it's so weird that Rick Ellis would be writing this. Thing. <laughs> and, I said, and, and I said, you see what he's doing. He's doing that Hollywood thing. Yeah. And um, I, I said, but you would never produce a musical about Cher. And he said, well, we should talk about it. And I said, what's, there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> Call Harvey Firestein. He's your guy. You know, Call Harvey. And he's probably written it already. And, um, and that was uh, in December of 2014. And in January of 2015, a few weeks later, I was home and the phone rang. And a voice on the other end of the phone said, hi, it's Cher. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I thought it was Christian Borle clowning mm -hmm. around and said, uh, that's very funny, Christian, you know. And he said, and she, he said, she said, <laughs> no, it's, it's really Cher. And I said, really, Cher? Why are you saying no? Why are you saying you're not going to, I want you to write this show? I said, but you, ha you don't know me. You, 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 <laughs> believe me, I'm, if I'm saying no, you don't want me to write it. You don't want somebody to write a show under duress. She said, but I don't understand. Why don't you want to write it? And I, I said, I don't mean it. I don't mean to be insulting. I just don't think I would do a particularly, I, I haven't the vaguest idea how to do it. <laughs> and she said, well, we, well, we, well, figure it out. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I said, I said, oh, 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 fine. I mean, it's nice talking to you. And I thought, well, that'll be the end of that. And then my life sort of exploded because uh, uh, my husband became gravely ill and and everything changed, and that was all I was thinking about. And uh, at the end of May, I was home uh, with Roger, uh, who was, you know, quite ill at that time. And and the phone rang again, and and a voice said, "Hi, it's Cher. I'm in New York, and I want to meet you." And I said, "I can't, um, I can't leave the house, Cher. My husband is <laughs> is dying. I can't leave him." And um, and Roger's. Like saying, go, 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 talk to Cher. Leave me the hell away from me already. Like, I'm fine. Please just go. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll come to your hotel for half an hour. And I met Jeffrey and Floaty in the lobby. And we went up to see Cher. And, and there's, you know, 50 people. And one of them is Cher. And it's, it's sweet. And, and everybody's sort of sitting over there. And Cher and I are sitting over here. And she's talking. To, you know, I'm listening to her. And you know, and I ask her some questions, and she starts to answer the questions. She's, you know, it's sort of crazy. I'm thinking, well, this is kind of crazy. There's Cher sitting there in a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, do-rag on her head. And, and um, you know, okay, so what was that like? And what was that like? And I'm, you know, sort of like a journalist. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and then I, you know, and then she said, I want you to do it. I want you, I want you to write it. And I, you're the guy I want to write it, and I 
and I want to start right away. And I, and I, and I said, I can't, I can't start right away. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Really, if you need to start right away, please, please find somebody else. And then uh, I went home and I thought that was really the end of that because she really seemed very keen to get started. And uh, uh, that was the end of May. And uh, Roger passed away in July. And I, you know, sort of went into hiding. And um, at the end of September, the phone rang again. Uh, the moral of this story clearly is just when the phone rings, pick up the phone. <laughs> I, it was uh, Cher. And she said, hi, I, I've, I've been following everything that's been happening to you. And I've waited a discreet amount of time. And I think you should get on a plane and come out here. And we should get to know each other. It's time for you to rejoin the human race. And I said, you're quoting Thornton Wilder? And she said, no, I'm quoting Hello, Dolly. <laughs> and I said, okay, you got me. I'm going to come because that's the first time I've laughed in three months. And, uh, and I went out to uh, California and, and hung out with her for a while. And, and uh, we got to know each other. And, and I, I pitched her an idea. And she said, well, that sounds like you. Just, just do that. And um, the next thing I knew, I was writing The Share Show. I must tell you mm -hmm. that the reason I go through this long, boring yeah. story is that, you know, you said, well, you know, what is the, what's the takeaway? Yeah. The takeaway is sometimes before you can figure out what the passion is, you know, you say no. If something doesn't go away <laughs> and, you know, and, and doesn't go away and doesn't go away and doesn't <laughs> go away and you think like you're doing your best to make it go away and it doesn't go away then there's some reason why you should be involved, you know, if you can figure what, out what that is. And, and it turned out that I just had sort of a wacky idea uh, that she dug and, and Jason Moore mm -hmm. liked, and the producers got behind. We did a reading of it last January. Uh, you know, one of these cockamamie readings with the music stands and and um, uh, and a, a great group of people, and uh, it was over by about five thirty, and and that same night they had capitalized the show and gotten a theater, uh, which was sort of astonishing, and uh, and then I thought, oh, now I really have to make this much better because, because if people are putting money into it then it's like then now that's a responsibility and it's an awesome responsibility but but the, the passion that i found on this project was really from the individual and her kindness to me at a very at you know at the lowest point in my life that i've experienced um uh she took the time to be kind to a stranger and I was so touched by that that I, 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 I kind of, I kind of thought, well, I have to do this for her. And so the, you know, in the in this particular case, it it wasn't passion for her story. It was it was it was passion for the individual and her willingness to sign on to something with me without a good reason in the world. She just had this kind of sense. Well, whether it was a good reason or uh, whether it was a good feeling or not remains to be seen. You know, the, the, the audiences will speak for, for, for that. But I think it's going to be kind of wonderful. And, and um, uh, I, by wonderful, I don't mean it's going to, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a huge hit or anything like that. I just mean 
it's kind of wonderful because the, everybody seems to be having a really good time. We're in the thick of rehearsals now, yeah. and um, and everybody seems to be having a a really good time with the life of share. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a date set for this, or if you're I'm sure there now, are <laughs> dates for it. But, you know, I you should never ask a writer yeah. about dates. Um, really? Are you the only writer in the world I've talked to who isn't motivated by a deadline? No, I was going to say, I, 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 I grew up in advertising, see, so, so to, I'm a deadline guy. Okay. You know, so that's why I, the date, my dates have nothing to do with the dates when performances start. You know, that, those are the dates I, I know when my stuff is due, but I don't know, I, you know, when, when rehearsals, you know, when, when, when we start performing, we're going to go to Chicago and, and try it out there, and then we're going to come to New York in the fall. That's about the best I can do. It's about a year from now, I think we'll be opening at the, oddly enough, at the, uh, uh, at the uh, Neil Simon Theater. Mm-hmm. The aforementioned Neil Simon has a theater, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's where we'll be. On 52nd Street, where Jersey Boys played for 12 years at the <laughs> August Wilson Theater. Well, we could either end this, or I have thought of, I think, one other thing that you could give if you are so inclined to share your information. Well, I, that I'm well I'm dying of curiosity now. Is, <laughs> okay. is, is it my inside leg measurement? What would you, uh, what would you like to well, know? Well, <laughs> adaptations are so popular. And you have been successful doing many different types of adaptations. You know, the adaptation of the life of these singers using the material to the adaptation of a TV show, a different property, into a different story of musical, I, I to the adaptation the of a book to the thing, and, and yeah. now Shares Life. I mean, do you have any advice or any common threads that you've seen adapting to give advice to other people who are stuck with this task of... Because sometimes it is. Sometimes some writers... I've heard this story many times, that not just you, that they get pestered, they get stuck, let me, you know, write this, do this adaptation. Um, well, it's an interesting mm-hmm. exercise. I think I, I've, I've always hankered to do a Chekhov. Um, I, uh, what is it about adaptation? It's a, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought about, uh, uh, I hadn't really thought about it in the way that you just presented it. So, um, so it's, a, it's a good question. So kudos. <laughs> Kudos on a on a good question. Now I have to actually think for a minute. <laughs> what do I think about adapting? I, I I said before I think of myself really sort of more of a collagist than a writer. I mean, Lynn Miranda's a writer. Stephen Sondheim's a writer. Tom Stoppard is a writer. Tony Kushner is a writer. I I Marshall Brickman is a writer. You know, these are people who somehow always know the right thing to do right off the bat. Or at least that's mm-hmm. how it appeals to me. Appears to me. Although interestingly. Um, uh, Stoppard says uh, when he was writing *Coast of Utopia* that um, he was he he wrote the first act of something and then was stumped and couldn't figure out how to actually get to the second act. And this was you know quite late in his career, you know, a writer of some note <laughs> and uh, an achievement. Uh, and he said, and then it occurred to me that the reason I couldn't figure out what came next was I had written the second act. So I went and wrote a first act for that for the act that I thought was the first act, which of course was turned out to be the second act. It's an, it's I think that's fascinating. Um, if so, like so, somebody like Tom Stoppard could be confused. It takes a lot of pressure off the rest of us, knowing what we're doing. Um, but uh, I think with regard specifically to adapting someone's life, like Jersey Boys, or the Share Show, um, 
or adapting a novel like Peter and the Starcatchers into Peter and the Starcatcher, um, or adapting it, you know, the Adams Family based on a TV show you mm-hmm. said, but in fact it wasn't based Movie on the TV comic show. Strip, yeah. It was based only, it was specifically not referencing okay. the television show because we didn't have the rights yeah. <laughs> to do that. We were only referencing the two-dimensional characters that were presented by Charles Adams in New Yorker cartoons. And inter- inter- the interesting challenge mm-hmm. there to try to breathe a third dimension into characters that we uh, that we learned about in two dimensions, in a, in a single frame, where nothing comes before, nothing comes after, and there are no consequences. How do you how do you adapt that idea into a living, breathing thing with a beginning and a middle and an end was a particular challenge. But I think the 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 general answer is always the same. You need an organizing principle. How are you going to tell your story once you once you know what the story is, or let's say if you're adapting a, a story. Um, you know, Jersey Boys wasn't a story. Jersey Boys was a thousand disparate anecdotes mm-hmm. told by guys who'd been telling those anecdotes for 50 years. Well, it was, it was a, made for a great lunch, but it didn't make for a great show because there was no, it, there was just disparate anecdotes. How do you figure out which to include and which to discard? How do you figure out how to, the, how to organize the ones that you're including in such a way that you can start here and end here and have people feel like they've been on that word that I hate to use, journey. But, you know, stories have to have an arc. And characters have to have that too. So you figure out how to do it. And the, the how is the organizing principle. And within the organizing principle is your principle of inclusion, your principle of exclusion. And it's good to actually um, make those lists of material and then to put have a pile that you want really want to use and have a pile that you're not going to use and um and then take the pile of things that you that you are in love with and figure out how to tell that story and that's your organizing principle the organizing principle for jersey boys was oh it's the 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 band's called the four seasons there are four guys there mother nature also gave us four seasons that's sort of neat Mm -hmm. um it's not profound but it's (laughs) neat the you know the the the, the four seasons um, mirror the evolution of the group the the you know the 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 uh, the birth of the group the spring the the full bloom of success the summer the the dissolution of the original quartet the fall and then the winter of Frankie's discontent as it were and um, and that neat structure advocated. That one of one of the four band members would sort of be our host for each of those four acts, and then we and if that's true, then they needn't agree with each other. Which, of course, in talking to the guys, we realized never happened. So we started out trying to figure out what the true, true, true story was, and then one day the light bulb was: well, why should we figure out what the true story is? Why can't they just each present their own? story and say that it's my story is the true story and let the audience play along becomes a little bit more interactive that way so that was the became the organizing principle for jersey boys um for um uh for peter and the star catcher the organizing principle became the you know act one takes place on a ship a dark claustrophobic environment act two takes place on an island where there's air and sun and light introduced for the first time in this young kid's life 
and all the other stuff that did from the novel that didn't fit into that neat mm -hmm. basic um, determination was discarded. There were seven seven chips in the novel. <laughs> there is there's fights happening. People are all the characters are flying around and sword fighting and dueling. Mm -hmm. There's not one sword fight in Peter and the Starcatcher. Um, you know, in the, in the play. Yeah. Um, uh, Making wonderful use of just the anticipation build that con you know the, well, the glorious you know, moment where he lifts up in the air about about to fly, to fly about to fly <laughs> yeah, yeah. but 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 we, so we had a very very clear organizing principle for peter and the star catcher uh, and and uh, you know and i think i think i'm trying to do it with i'm trying to do it with share it's, it's challenging uh it's challenging when it's just you and uh there's you know the songs already exist mm -hmm. so uh, it, 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 was, it was great when Jason uh, came on to the project and there was somebody to talk to. Because mm -hmm. you're, if you're talking something into existence, I find it's, it's better to talk to someone other than yourself. If you're just talking to yourself, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lonely conversation. And, and it was the first thing that I've worked on, you know, ever since the time I was 24 years old, uh, where Roger wasn't there to tell me what to do. You know, I had the great... I had the great blessing of living with someone who, who was this encyclo with encyclopedic knowledge of everything to do with the theater. And so, you know, if I ever asked him a question, in five minutes there were like six books on my desk to read, or, you know, or he would know. And, uh, you know, or he would say, well, don't do it that way, do it that way. Or here's, this, this would be funny. And, and um, you know, it was, it was, it was great to have, um, to have that resource uh, you know, at my fingertips for my entire adult life. So uh, as as long and lengthy as it is, you know, as it has been. <laughs> I am getting like buried as does the guy sort, who called sort, Rick Does that sort of answer your adaptation question? <laughs> yes, now? very, okay, and, and, and far more eloquently than I ever would have expected for you doing this off the top of your head. <laughs> I, I think what's you do yourself a disservice the, saying that you haven't head. studied playwriting. All your answers. My, the way, I, you, the way yeah. I've studied it is by going to see a shitload of plays, you know, and loving yeah. the theater. You know, you watch and watch and watch and watch and watch. I think if I know something about musicals, it's because I've, I've seen so many up close and worked on so many and listened to the arguments mm -hmm. of the people putting them together and, and, you know, tried to really pay attention and go back and back and back and back to see it, which was a luxury because I worked at an ad advertising agency where I could stand in the back whenever I wanted to at, at, a, at, a, at a show. And I could just be there. I could watch Jerome Robbins in rehearsal for Jerome Robbins Broadway. I could watch Bob Fosse in rehearsal for Big Deal. I could watch uh, Tommy Toon in rehearsal for uh, My One and Only and, and Grand Hotel and Will Rogers Follies. I, 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 could, I, could, I could watch Trevor Nunn in rehearsal for Sunset Boulevard. I could watch... Uh, to, you know, uh, George Wolfe in rehearsal for Angels in America. I, I was so blessed to be able to just be a fly on the wall and and see and try just try to absorb, absorb, absorb. I mean, uh, you know, just some osmosis has to happen. Um, or even you just think, oh, I, oh, well, that doesn't work. I must remember not to do that, <laughs> you know. Um, it's the great thing. It's, it's, it's why theater is sort of a passed down uh, art. You can't write, you can't write it down, mm -hmm. and you can't, you can't um, codify it, but you can steal 
<laughs> you know, you steal see, like an artist. You steal, book? you know, you see, oh my God, I got, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to use that sometime. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean about collages. Yeah. I'm on the subway and I hear somebody say something and it just sticks in my ear. I, I just, I write it down and think that's going that, to, that's a, that's a, I, I'm, that's going to be a line in something, you know, um, uh, that kind of stealing. I mean, you know, uh, nicking as they would say in 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 in, uh, in the UK, um, I think that's whatever that's what we all do. It's all friendly uh, thievery, isn't it? I think it is. Anyway, that sounds like a good conclusion to an incredible uh, interview. And and again, mm. you for for someone who claims to have not studied, you sure ha have mentioned many specific examples and put things into very clear words that I, as a playwright, can understand. And take knowledge, and I, I bet tons of others will also. And I think a lot of things for actors to get a different perspective on the, the people to whom they're speaking their words. <laughs> as, as bulky as that statement was, I, I am honored to have had the chance to talk with you and 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 meet you and, and more. Keep going, advice. keep going. And I'm honored to be the guy that called you an old fart. <laughs> Did you? I thought it was me. I, you called me an old fool. No, see, I no, the voices in my head around. are so loud; it's hard for me to know sometimes who's actually speaking. I'm. No, I, I am always inspired when I know that. Thank you still for life thank you ahead. thank you for having me on. But let's remind everyone of the actual point of this, which is to come Jersey see Boys. Jersey Boys yes. at New World Stages, beginning November twenty second. Yes, Jersey Boys. You know, uh, written by Marshall Brickman and uh, and with songs by uh, Bob Gordio and Bob Crew, and uh, the life of the great Frankie Valley and the and the uh, the Four Seasons. It's good. It's a good show. Maybe I'll be able to actually get into it when I get back. It, when it was hot, I couldn't get a ticket. I just couldn't get it. Well, you know, that's the essence of heat: is that is that eventually it, it, it wanes. Yeah. Which is why you're gonna one day you'll be sorry you have that tattoo on your arm. Well, you know, <laughs> it's not. It, it's a whole bunch of stuff with the tattoo. I also think just visually, it's like one of the best kick-ass logos. It is a kick-ass logo. It, and I, the, to kick me, even the logo. logo means more than even beyond the show itself. It's a kick-ass like. logo. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite brilliant. Um, yeah. Well, okay. okay. Pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure.